Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show, but today I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for now. Uh, If you enjoy the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you can do that. You can like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcasts. You could sign up for our email newsletter by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. It is completely free, and we send you uh, periodically some really interesting research updates that are very practical, very concise, and most importantly, very useful. Uh, You could work with one of our one-on-one coaches who offer virtual coaching. For more information about that program, you can go to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD, and it gets you 5% off of your order. Uh, You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review. That's a research review that we publish every single month. Greg and I are co-authors, along with Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms. And you could check out Macro Factor. That's the diet app that we developed, which does offer a free trial. So you can try it out, see if you like it, and make your decision about whether or not you'd like to subscribe to it. Uh, Quick note, this is the final episode before our summer break. Um... We will be coming back after that break. It'll be about six weeks or so. We'll be coming back better than ever with some fresh ideas for the podcast. We'll be coming back. We'll be coming back. Uh, Very astute podcast viewers who watch this podcast on YouTube will notice that Greg and I decided to wear the exact same outfits as last week when we recorded. Uh, The reality is, I think this is the first time ever we're doing back-to-back episodes the same day. Correct, yes. Uh, so this is one recording session, and it's going to be interesting to see if our mental state just deteriorates. It's going to be a real test of cognitive endurance. So we'll see if this one just falls apart toward the end, but hopefully we can keep it together here. Uh, getting into the content for this episode, we're going to do some Q&A stuff. Uh, I'm going to start out with a couple really quick ones, uh, some questions from listeners. The first one is about creatine. So The question is, I mix my creatine in boiling water and I leave it in the refrigerator overnight. Is that okay? So there's really two questions here. Uh, First of all, boiling water. Uh, What could be the impact of mixing creatine into boiling water? And what would be the potential advantage there? So sometimes people mix their creatine into warm or hot water because it dissolves better. Uh, So I'm going to put a link in the show notes with a a really great review paper that talks a lot about the the kind of chemical characteristics of creatine and some practical considerations. Um, But one thing that is definitely true is that with cold or cool water, sometimes creatine doesn't dissolve that well. uh, And you can facilitate that process by warming the water up a little bit. So one liter of water effectively dissolves about six grams of creatine at approximately four degrees Celsius. Um, But if you heat that liter of water up to 20 degrees Celsius, you can actually dissolve 14 grams of creatine. Which which that'll be the temperature of water coming out of the tap. About uh, about 20 Celsius. Yeah. Um, 20 Celsius is like around 72 Fahrenheit, right? I don't know. I'd have to check. <sighs> I don't. Celsius to Fahrenheit yep, is fake. I'm, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm very comfortable with most metric measurements. Celsius, completely fake. I also don't have any idea what the temperature of tap water is, okay, to be honest. 20 Celsius is 68 Fahrenheit. 
Okay. I think uh, I think tap water is around like 55 or 60 because okay. it's like in pipes not too far underground so yeah i i think it's probably in the neighborhood of like eight eight t like 16 18 degrees celsius something okay. like that i should know more my my house is on well water so i i basically am the proprietor of a water treatment plant whether i like it or not <laughs> um but yeah so a liter of water at 20 degrees celsius will dissolve uh about 14 grams of creatine uh, 50 degrees Celsius will dissolve about 34 grams of creatine and 60 degrees Celsius will dissolve about 45 grams of creatine. Now, of course, there'd be no reason for you to mix 45 grams of creatine into a liter of water and then chug it, but that gives you an idea of how temperature and uh, the ability to dissolve creatine is uh, kind of quantitatively linked. Um, so some people will say, well, I don't want to drink a whole liter of water to get down my, you know, four or five grams of creatine today. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to heat it up a little bit, go with a smaller amount of liquid. That's totally fine. And with, within those types of temperatures, really nothing to be too concerned about. But personally, I think boiling is probably overkill. I mean, like, like we see from those numbers, even getting it up to like, you know, 30, 40 degrees Celsius should be more than enough to improve, to improve the solubility, uh, related to creatine. Uh, and one thing to keep in mind is that, uh, generally speaking, so creatine, uh, has a tendency to break down to creatinine, which is basically just a waste product. We excrete it. Uh, generally speaking, when you mix creatine into beverages that are very acidic or very, very hot, that will accelerate the breakdown of creatine to creatinine. So I don't think you want to make creatine. I don't think you want to go out of your way to be like, oh, I'm going to boil this water to make it as hot as I possibly can. Because you probably are going to be inducing some degree of breakdown from creatine to creatinine. Not necessarily a harmful thing, but just kind of a wasteful thing. You know, mm -hmm. you want to consume creatine uh, and you'd prefer not to be converting a bunch of that to creatinine because ultimately it's not going to be as effective when, when you consume it. Um, so in terms of heating water, it can be helpful for solubility, but boiling is probably overkill, might increase the likelihood that you have some creatine breakdown before you ingest it. So, you know, mildly warm temperature should be plenty or just a comfortable drinking temperature for something like tea or coffee. Uh, that, that should be way more than hot enough to facilitate something dissolving uh, or specifically creatine dissolving. The other element of the question is uh, about storing it overnight in cold water. Uh, again, storage of creatine, once it's mixed into solution, the amount of breakdown to creatinine is going to be impacted by pH and by temperature. So cold is a good thing. That's going to generally reduce the amount of breakdown. Uh, water, you know, obviously not acidic. It's going to be neutral in terms of pH. So uh, if you were to mix it at a milder temperature, that's still kind of warm or mix it however the hell you want, storing something, uh, storing creatine overnight in cold water is not going to be something that induces a great deal of, of breakdown to creatinine. So, uh, in that paper I mentioned that I'll link in the show notes, uh, you can look at how different pHs, for example, affect the breakdown to creatinine over time. And so within 72 hours, so let's say you're going to store your creatine already mixed for three days. And by the way, if you're storing it as a powder or a pill, it's good basically forever. I mean, it's, it's extremely stable in a powder or capsule form. But if you're mixing it into a solution and then storing it, uh, for a pH between like 5.5 to 7.5, 
even after 72 hours, you're only looking at like maybe 3% of breakdown from creatine to creatinine. So you still have 97% of your creatine dose totally intact. And that's pretty negligible, not a big deal. Now, if the pH of the solution is down to like 3.5, now you're talking about, you know, 20, 22% of breakdown. So at this point, you are seeing some pretty substantial degradation of creatine to creatinine. Now, if you're taking like five or six grams a day, what is the impact of having that only be like four or four and a half grams a day? Mm -hmm. Probably nothing. It's probably not a huge deal, but generally speaking, you know, no need to, to um, induce this degree of breakdown if it's not necessary. And uh, this is relevant for products that, um, sell creatine in like a canned or bottled beverage and like god knows how long it's been in solution almost certainly several weeks at that point by the time you're getting it at that point you are talking about very substantial breakdown of creatine isn't there creatine in like bang energy drink like yeah one of like, those i'm not going to make any specific claim about their exact process um in terms of how they you know purport to make that work. But from my understanding of creatine, I don't see how you would put creatine in solution in an acidic beverage for several weeks and not experience a, a very substantial amount of breakdown. Well, so so that actually kind of makes sense. So I've, I've tried probably a dozen flavors of Bang. I consider myself an energy drink connoisseur. Yeah. Um, so if, if I see a new flavor of something, like I'm going to give it a shot. I've never found a flavor of Bang that I like. It's all terrible. And I th and if you disagree with that uh, and you're watching this on YouTube, just, just sound off in the comments. That'll help us get more views, uh, and I'm not going to read them. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, I... God, I've had so many. They're all terrible. And I, I think, like, the thing I don't like about them is most... I mean, most energy drinks or even just soft drinks have, have like a bit of an acidic bite to them. Yeah. And I think bang energy drinks don't. Like, huh. I, I think they are neutral or maybe even slightly basic. Wow. Um, like, they don't, yeah, they, they don't they don't have that same, like, slight acidic twang that most soft drinks do. Yeah. And maybe they do that in service of, of uh, minimizing creatine breakdown, uh, which, I mean, if so... That's interesting. Uh, I don't think they have enough creatine to even matter in the first place, but it also just completely ruins the product and makes it undrinkable. So, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some, um, but Stronger by Science podcast does not support the, the machinations of Bang Energy Drink. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, a good question, though. So people would look at this information and say, okay, Hot beverage might induce some breakdown. Acidic beverage might induce some breakdown. And so a question is, what about coffee? Because coffee is usually served quite hot uh, and has a pH of roughly five in most cases, I believe. Uh, so it's relatively acidic and quite hot. Um, well, some of the earlier studies investigating creatine and the efficacy of creatine or the effectiveness, they actually allowed, if not encouraged, uh, study participants to kind of take their powder home, mix it into coffee or tea, and drink it that way during a loading phase. And during many of those early studies, uh, creatine worked quite well. And and so I think we have enough observational evidence to suggest that yeah, you can mix your um, uh, your creatine into a 
hot and or acidic beverage, consume it thereafter, and, and it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But uh, when you start talking about coffee, then you invite the question about, well, what about the potential interaction between creatine and caffeine, uh, which is a very complicated question. If you want to deep dive into that particular uh, conversation, uh, there's a, a mass article that I wrote about that that is more updated. There's a slightly less up-to-date article, strongerbyscience.com slash creatine. Um, that has plenty of information about this concept, but there are some rumblings, some whispers in the literature that there might be some kind of interaction between creatine and caffeine. It's puzzling because, like I said, there were early studies where creatine was mixed into coffee and it worked just fine. Um, but to my count, there are approximately five studies that have looked at relatively high dose caffeine. So not just a cup of coffee, but like 300 milligrams or like five milligrams per kilogram like really robust caffeine doses mixed with a loading phase of creatine uh, or just like a, a constant like four to six weeks of, of a maintenance dose of creatine. There, to my count, there have been five studies that directly investigate explicitly. Is there an interaction between uh, caffeine use and the utility, the performance benefits of creatine? Um, and what's really interesting about that is like, from a rationalist perspective, working through like theoretical relationships, you'd say, no, like they should both work fine. Like there's, there's no reason that, that we would necessarily assume that caffeine would interfere with the performance benefits of creatine. But what's interesting is you look at those five studies and three of them reported an ergogenic effect of creatine alone, maybe a fourth, depending on how you interpret it. So three or four out of five said, yes, creatine in this study without caffeine worked. Um, and as far as I can tell, from my interpretation, zero of the five found an ergogenic effect of creatine when it was mixed with caffeine, which is odd. And so like, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't think this evidence is strong enough to say like, yes, caffeine definitely blunts or meaningfully attenuates the performance effects of creatine. But I know a lot of people who are very quick to reject that notion and just say, oh, absolutely not. Both are great. Use both. It's fine. And I I don't know. You, you look at this research and you say, I'm not seeing the empirical evidence supporting the use of like high dose daily caffeine throughout, uh, you know, a loading phase of creatine or a month or two of creatine. We're not seeing a lot of evidence of those actually panning out particularly well. So I, what I usually tell people is I think like my hunch is that the two of them can be used uh, simultaneously. There's no question if you're using creatine regularly, you'll still get an acute performance boost from caffeine. That's, that's been shown many times. Um, but when it comes to this idea that caffeine high doses every day might interfere with the ergogenic effects of creatine, I think that there's a decent possibility that uh, GI discomfort might be dictating some of that. And there, there has been some direct research suggesting that combining high-dose caffeine and high-dose creatine causes some GI discomfort. And obviously, it's hard to perform your best when you've got an upset tummy. Um, and so th there's some evidence to suggest that like, if you notice that these two aren't mixing very well for you, maybe you take them at different times of the day. I think that's a very pragmatic approach. 
Um, if you're really paranoid about losing your creatine benefits, you could kind of cut down your daily caffeine dose to basically just uh, as much as you need to either enhance your workouts or just kind of get through the workday. Um, I, I don't think that there's necessarily strong enough evidence to say that you must pick one or the other, but um, I also think some people kind of reject that possibility uh, a little bit too a little bit too quickly, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, now moving on, I've got another question. Uh, this one is about motivation to work out. So the question is, I've lost motivation to work out and I truly just don't enjoy it anymore. What should I do? And I know a lot of listeners will hear that and say like, I cannot fathom that question. Like I remember when I was in college, it was hard for me to stay out of the gym. Like I, I was so much looking forward to my next workout, I had to try to give myself reasons to rest. You know what I mean? Like I, I was dying to get back into the gym. Dude, I, I remember, uh, and, and I'm not going to say who this person was. I'm not going to put them on blast. But I remember there was this bench specialist who uh, just like, he he wrote, a, he wrote a blog post for some website, uh, you know, just talking about how important consistency was for training. He's like, I haven't missed a workout in the last 20 years. Um, like my father's funeral was scheduled on the day that I was supposed to have a binge workout at the time I normally work out. Guess what? Didn't go to my dad's funeral. And it's, it's like framed as like, this is a good thing. Yeah. And I, I remember at like 16 years old being like, hell yeah, brother, this guy's <laughs> awesome. This is exactly what I aspire to be. And now looking back, I'm like, Oh man, when he was writing that, he was about the age I currently am, and like, yeah. ooh, that does that does not that does not jibe with uh my my current set of priorities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes I I see those. I'm like, oh, sometimes you maybe ought to miss a workout. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, God, I, I remember one time I I was at the gym and this guy has me spotting him like some stranger, and uh, he's doing incline bench, and I'm like dude, that, that surgical wound that I'm looking at on your shoulder, like is about to split open. Yeah. Like, are you supposed to be here? But it was like one of those things. I was like, yeah, I, I just had shoulder surgery, but like, am I going to miss incline bench day? Hell no. Yeah. I'm like, y your doctor probably wants you to. <laughs> yeah. So also not going to put this person on blast, but similar deal, shoulder surgery. I think, uh, I think it was a guy getting like bone spurs shaved off of his shoulder. Uh, but he scheduled that surgery on squat day. And so he, he came to the gym just like high, just fucking high out of his mind on whatever drugs they'd given him for the surgery and also whatever pain medication they'd given him, you know, also like post-surgery to, to deal with the surgery pain. And so, yeah, he was, he was high as a kite. And it was, uh, it was box squat day. And so like since he had sol shoulder surgery, he was like, using a safety bar. Um, but like he couldn't even balance. Like he had two side spotters and a, and I was the back spotter, which like was also just pointless. Like you can't back spot a box squad particularly right. well. Um, but yeah, so he like, he was like falling backwards, falling forward. Like couldn't even maintain balance <laughs> on the box during his warmups. Yeah. And we're like, dude, you gotta call it. And he's like, no, it's squat day. I can't miss squat day. And uh, to his credit, 
like during warmups, I was like, oh my God, he's going to kill himself, probably injure all of us spotters as well. Like something bad is going to happen. But adrenaline's a hell of a drug. Yeah. Once he got four plates on the bar, his squat workout actually went pretty well. Yeah. So jokes on you. Yeah. Who who am I to say that he that he did something wrong? Yeah. Um. So anyway, you've lost motivation to work out. Uh, the complete opposite of of that scenario where you're just like beating down the door to get into the gym. Uh, but what do you do when when you just aren't enjoying it anymore and you've lost that motivation? Uh, I know that I've personally been there before. Even though, like I said, as a college student, I never would have imagined I could ever get there. Uh, And I've navigated this, obviously, with plenty of clients as well. And so in my experience, um, there are uh, a couple things that could be going on here. So first of all, I think the the, the first step, in my opinion, is to kind of revisit an individual's goal hierarchy. And, And that's something that we've talked about on the show before. If you go to strongerbyscience.com slash goal setting, we have a lot more detailed discussion of this concept, but a goal hierarchy, you know, basically is a, almost like a web of, uh, subordinate goals and intermediate goals that all feed up into a major superordinate goal. And when a goal hierarchy is constructed well and functioning properly, uh, these, these different goals are all interrelated. They're all generally serving the same overall purpose, which is to support that superordinate goal. But sometimes you will find that there are gaps in this goal hierarchy, or there's some degree of contradiction or misalignment within the goal hierarchy. And you're kind of toiling away at these day-to-day subordinate goals. And for some reason, they become disconnected from the intermediate and the superordinate goals. And sometimes you have to revisit this, uh, this goal hierarchy and get back to the drawing board and figure out where's the gap, where's the contradiction, where's the misalignment. Because if we're not careful, we'll kind of slip into a situation where we keep our lower level lower level goals the same, which are usually the more like day-to-day processes and tasks. And our superordinate goal can kind of drift away. Uh, and, And we're so busy dealing with the lower level stuff, we kind of don't notice that all of our activities are trending further away from what's truly important to us. And sometimes we need to revisit that and realign some things. And so I I think that's the first thing I would do is if I'm noticing for myself or for a client that the motivation just seems really forced, the enjoyment just isn't there. Sometimes we got to get back to the drawing board and figure out like, do we have the wrong subordinate and intermediate goals to support the superordinate goal? Is there something that's not aligned properly here? Um, In addition to that, the second thing that I tend to look at, uh, I've mentioned self-determination theory on the show before a few times, but it generally suggests that people are most able to cultivate intrinsic motivation when they are effectively nourishing uh, a few key psychological needs. And those are the needs for perceived competence, perceived autonomy, and perceived relatedness. So uh, motivation is a central topic of self-determination theory. And specifically, what you're trying to do with self-determination theory is not just cultivate motivation, but cultivate intrinsic motivation. Because intrinsic motivation seems to be a much, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a higher quality form of motivation. There's, there's something very different about pursuing something for its intrinsic value in a self-motivated way versus just doing something because your coach kind of guilted you into it or because it'll make your coach stop yelling at you, you know? So what you want to do 
if you revisit the goal hierarchy and you realize, yeah, this is well constructed, everything's well aligned, all of these puzzle pieces fit together well, but something's still missing, it may be that one of those psychological needs is not being met. And so you need to revisit, what do I need to do to support my own perception of my autonomy related to my goal-seeking uh, behaviors? Uh, to enhance my competence related to my goal-seeking behaviors or to feel some sense of relatedness in terms of I, I need to be part of something as I'm striving toward this goal. I need some kind of network of support or some kind of community to tap into. So generally speaking, when you've got a well-defined and well-constructed goal hierarchy and you have a high level of perceived autonomy, competence, and relatedness specifically related to the goal you're pursuing, those should all line up really well in a way that facilitates uh, cultivating really high quality intrinsic motivation. Uh, so those are the two places I go when motivation seems to be lacking. I've got uh, I, I've got an alternate suggestion, which I don't know how how evidence based this is, but I don't know. It's worked for me in the past. Uh, so I think that a lot of people, um, I, I I find that a lot of people lose motivation for lifting uh at a point that i would describe as like kind kind of early in their fitness journey but not like super early so you know they they certainly stick it out for the first like several months of training but then after i would say after like two or three years once the rate of progress really slows down you're not they, increasing your bench 30 pounds a month or or even like 30 pounds a year yeah you know it, it's you've kind of reached the point where you you certainly still can make progress but maybe you're putting on a pound or two of muscle per year right maybe you're adding 20 30 pounds to your total per year but like it's it's really a grind like it's really a slog uh like i, I think a lot of people stop and evaluate and they realize like oh wait i don't really like lifting that much i just liked seeing the quantifiable progress i was making and so like that that aspect was very motivating and gratifying, but like just the the process of lifting itself wasn't that that appealing to them. They they just liked what they could get for it. Um and so in a situation like that, like if if that's sort of the the situation you're running up against, I I think something that can help a lot is to find some other physical pursuit that still supports the general type of outcomes you're interested in but that will still allow you to see quantifiable progress week to week so yeah. you know if if going to the gym and lifting weights now feels like you're just banging your head into the wall with minimal progress like you you could try doing like a lot more calisthenic type stuff like especially for upper body training you can train most muscles really well with just kind of like body weight stuff but there's there's a lot of like skill related movements where you know at least for several months you'll probably make really rapid progress because now you're going to be training motor skills that like you currently suck at the same way when you started lifting you sucked at doing every lift because you'd never done it before you didn't have those motor skills and so you can kind of almost like re-mimic the initial kind of newbie gains process. The training you're doing will still be in support of the strength or physique related goals you're interested in, but you can you can get back some of that gratification of uh of like meaningful results and progress on a shorter timeline. So so um 
I don't know how that fits in with like the whole goal hierarchy thing, but just as, as like a little practical strategy, I've, I've seen that help a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, that would be like a, a really nice intermediate goal that you could kind of insert there. Uh, and, and you might find that your overall goal is being met better when you have some goal in there that is more related to, uh, broadening your capabilities physically versus mm -hmm. just like, you know, maybe you thought that your goal was to be just an excellent bench presser. And you're like, Oh, actually I had that goal when I was increasing my bench, like 25 pounds a month. Yeah. Now I'm finding that my goal probably is more just expanding, um, my physical capabilities and, and conquering new physical tasks that yeah. I feel, uh, really, uh, competent completing, mm -hmm. you know? So, so yeah, you, you might go through and, and notice that you're actually tweaking some intermediate goals or adding some, or maybe adjusting the language of your superordinate goal in a way that's a little bit more compatible with what you're truly interested in, in achieving. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, like CrossFit is so sticky for a lot of people. Cause yeah. Like you're, you're training so many different things at once that like, rather than having that kind of three to six month process where you get like pretty good, pretty quickly at a really small number of things, you're, you're targeting so many different skills that like the rate of skill acquisition for any single one of those skills is relatively slower than it would have been if you just focused on that one thing. But you know, every time you come back to skills, that maybe you haven't touched in two weeks, you will probably be at least like a little better, but noticeably better than you were previously. So I, I think it, I think it helps stretch out that period of training where, where you do get that gratifying quantifiable progress across multiple domains for like a reasonably long period of time. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're the type of person who likes to more focus on one thing at a time, you know, try switching from, kind of like powerlifting, bodybuilding-ish style training to like calisthenics or like give weightlifting a shot. Yeah. That'll keep you busy for a while. It takes a long time to get really good at snatches, but like it, feel, it feels good every time you can like feel your skill improving. Um, give strongman a shot. Uh, if, there's like, if there's a strongman gym nearby, it's going to take you forever to get really good at every implement, but you can get a great workout in with strongman implements. Um, so yeah, there's, there, there's a lot of different directions you could go with it. Well, and, and that's like, in my opinion, that's why the whole concept of like power building in natural bodybuilding became so big is because like, if you're a natural bodybuilder, you know, you can't just switch up your compounds and see if it makes you gain 20 more pounds of muscle. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you don't have as many levers to pull. And you're not reaching lean body mass levels that are so drastically higher uh, than where you started. Like natural bodybuilding, you have a pretty finite ceiling for lean body mass. Uh, you make most of your gains early and then it becomes a grind. And because of the realities of, of low energy availability uh, and the consequences of that, you can only really compete effectively maybe every year, but preferably every two or three. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of natural bodybuilders were like, all right, my rate of progress is very slow because I've kind of gotten past that intermediate level and I can only compete every like two or three years while still maintaining like my sanity. Mm -hmm. So I got to have something else to do in the, in the interim. And I think that's a lot of, a lot of what led to natural bodybuilders saying, maybe I'll do some powerlifting. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and like you said, and you, you can try some powerlifting, and then you say, well, maybe I'll do a little bit of weightlifting, right? And so you're you're kind of switching out some of these uh, lower level goals. Your your primary goal might still be, you know, I I do want to be a high level natural bodybuilding competitor, but in the meantime, let's add some other stuff into this mix to keep things fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Greg, uh, talking a little bit about walking, what do you got here? Yeah. So I did a little, uh, Instagram Q and a couple days ago. I, I have the intention of doing one every week or two. It's turning into maybe one every two months or so, but I, I did do one recently. Uh, and I said, whatever question I liked the most, I would cover on the podcast. And so this is that question uh, from that Instagram Q&A. Is there a point of diminishing returns when it comes to weight loss and walking? So, you know, we've we've talked about the benefits of just walking and general low-intensity activity for, um, you know, like recovery stuff, uh, general health, potentially weight loss. But uh, this was a really good question. Is there a point of diminishing returns and um, for, for weight loss specifically? And first, I think it's worth addressing why one would expect there to be a point of diminishing returns. So, you know, to start with, uh, we've talked about the concept of energy compensation on the podcast many times before. But just in general, um, when you do some form of exercise... Uh, you know, you're expending uh, calories, you're expending energy during exercise. But then there's the question of, well, to what extent does that actually affect your total daily energy expenditure? So if you expend 100 calories during an exercise session, you you might not necessarily experience a 100 calorie increase in total energy expenditure for the day. It seems like on average, for 100 calories of exercise, maybe total daily energy expenditure will increase by about 70 calories, just in terms of painting and broad strokes. But there's a lot of variability around that. Um, So one of the things that's going to matter there is whether you're at an energy deficit or at maintenance or a surplus. And so if you're walking for the purpose of weight loss, uh, you're assuming here that someone's in an energy deficit And when someone is in a deficit, they tend to experience more energy compensation. So you you might expect a smaller effect of increased walking volume on total daily energy expenditure and therefore weight loss. Another thing to note is just the, the larger a deficit is, generally the more metabolic adaptation you're experiencing. And so, you know, if you're trying to walk 15 miles a day and you're holding energy intake constant, then you're putting yourself in a larger deficit. You might experience more metabolic adaptation. You might experience more energy compensation. And so that would kind of be a a pressure pushing you towards diminishing returns as well. So there's every reason to suspect that there would be a point of diminishing returns where, you know, doing some purposeful walking has a positive effect for weight loss doing a little more still has a positive effect, but a slightly smaller positive effect. Doing even more still has a marginal increase in positive effect, but that's even smaller yet. So you you should, I think, theoretically expect that kind of relationship. But when I went to the literature looking for that type of relationship, like I, I was hoping to find a either just like a handful of really great prospective studies looking at 
walking dosage and uh, uh, weight loss over time, or ideally a meta-analysis looking at kind of the dose-response relationship between purposeful walking volume or duration and prospective weight loss. And I'm not necessarily going to say that that meta doesn't exist, but if it does exist, I, I was unable to find it. Um, so, you know, I, I had to dig a little bit deeper and try to uh, piece together an answer to this question from a few other different lines of research. Uh, so the, the first study I want to talk about, it's called Relationship Between Physical Activity, Body Mass Index, and Risk of Heart Failure by Pandy and colleagues. Um, and so I, I'm not interested in the, in the heart failure part of this, of this study. Um, not a big heart guy? Well, just, just for answering this question, it's, it's irrelevant for this particular segment. Um, but this, this was a pretty big study. There were like 50,000, 50, like 51,000 total participants in this study. And table one in the study, and, and free full text here, so you can pull this up and check it out for yourself. Um, it it shows the relationship just kind of at, at baseline of how much physical activity, how much leisure time physical activity people were doing, and uh, what their what their BMIs were. So just just you know, I'm not trying to make any sort of like causal statements about this, but just kind of in general how much lighter or how much to, to what extent do people who engage in more leisure time physical activities have lower bmis than people who uh, engage in less leisure time physical activity and so they they split people out into four categories the first category was people who did no leisure time physical activity the next category was people who did one to five hundred met minutes per week of physical activity uh, and i'll i'll uh Put, put met minutes in more concrete terms a bit later. Uh, the next category was people who did 500 to 1,000 met minutes of physical activity uh, per week. And the top group was people who did more than 1,000 met minutes of physical activity per week. And so the difference between the people who did no leisure time physical activity and people who did the most leisure time physical activity was the difference of like, 3.1 BMI points, which in kilograms, that's like a difference of about 10 kilos or like 20, 22 pounds. So, you know, that's just, just kind of put in general terms, the people who are far and away the least active and the people who are, who are quite active, you know, we're talking about maybe like a 20 pound difference just in terms of like what, what we're seeing kind of cross-sectionally, which is a notable difference but i i think i think a lot of people have in their minds that like you know everyone who does no physical activity is going to be quite large and people in like virtually everyone who does a lot of physical activity isn't and like that's that's not really what we see like we do see uh, a certainly a non-trivial mean difference between those two groups of people but it, it's certainly not a night and day difference uh and uh before just one general note I want to make about this paper, and it, and I would encourage you to pull it up, um, like just to look at table one in it. I think that one one just kind of general point to pull out from this is I think that it can be somewhat misleading when people talk about the um, 
the impact of like certain lifestyle or behavioral modifications on just like obesity rates per se, because that's, that's just asking about what percentage of people clear, uh, what is, what is effectively a fairly arbitrary cutoff. And so like, um, you know, I, so I just said the, the difference between the most and the least active people in this study was a mean of 3.1 BMI points, which isn't nothing, but also isn't really a night and day difference. But, uh, like kind of within that, the amount of people with class two or three obesity, uh, in the lowest versus most active, uh, groups of people here, it was like 23.6% versus 8.2%. So it, it was like a threefold difference in class two, class three obesity rates. And so I kind of feel like if this was a magazine article, it might say being more active will cut your risk of severe obesity by two thirds, which wouldn't be an inaccurate statement, but I think would be a misleading statement because one, you know, you can't draw any causal inferences from this data, but two, even if you could, I do think the most, uh, like the broadest and most accurate characterization is like, ah, maybe a difference of 3.1 BMI points, which also happens to coincide with like a two thirds reduction in class two, class three obesity risk. But, you know, I, I think people will interpret those two statements very differently. And I think the 3.1 BMI point difference is the more uh, honest way to present it, I would yeah. say. So for a lot of people, those 3.1 BMI points got them over the hump and in, in, into that different that category. Right, right, right. Yeah. So so like in, in the in the least active group of people, that's probably a lot of folks with BMIs of like, 35, 36, 37. And in the most active group of people, that's a lot of people with BMIs of like 31, 32, 33. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's just like, yeah, that, that's enough to tick you over from one category to the next, but maybe don't don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah. Um so yeah. Uh and, and so this this paper does kind of hint that there is maybe a, a point of diminishing returns. So I've been talking about the most and the least active groups here, but the third group there, the people doing 500 to 1,000 met minutes of leisure time physical activity per week, um, their BMIs were an average of 2.3 lower, uh, 2.3 BMI points lower than the people who did no leisure time physical activity uh, versus 3.1 BMI points for the most active people. And so the the people in that third group, the people doing 500 to 1,000 met minutes of activity per week, were averaging about 700 met minutes of activity per week. So uh, using people who did no leisure time physical activity as your baseline, uh, it, again, if if we were using this for causal inferences, we're not. But, but just to, to be clear of like the illustration I'm trying to make here, that would be like 700 met minutes of leisure time physical activity per week for a 2.3 point reduction. And then the people in that most active group were averaging like 1,650 met minutes of leisure time activity per week. So essentially you're doing an additional 950 met minutes of activity per week for merely an additional 0.8 BMI point reduction. So like 700 minute, met minutes per week for a 2.3 point reduction 1650 for a 3.1 point reduction. So that that suggests that like maybe those first 700 met minutes per week had a larger marginal effect than the next 950 met minutes per week. So 
again, like we we can't infer causation from that, but you know, it 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 is at least suggestive that maybe there's a point of diminishing returns somewhere between 700 and 1600 minutes of of leisure time physical activity per week. And so like I said, if if you're not like I was going to say if you're not uh familiar with with met minutes and using that as a standard measure, which like I don't know why you would be unless you're a doctor. I think doctors are the only people who use mets. Um but yeah, if, if you're not used to that as like a standard of measure, um just to just to put that in the context of just walking. So walking at I think like two and a half miles per hour is an average of like three met minutes or, or three mets. Uh so like three mets per minute or whatever. Uh so essentially walking at a at a not super leisurely, but kind of like slow to normal walking pace burns about three times more energy than you would burn at rest. So that's kind of like the definition of a met. Uh and so about 700 met minutes per week, like the people in that third group, that would be equivalent to walking about one and a half miles per day, give or take. Uh, and 1,650 met minutes per week would be walking about 3.1 miles per day. And so that that's not like total walking distance. That would just be kind of like purposeful leisure time walking. Um, so, you know, that suggests that you know, maybe there's a point of diminishing returns that's somewhere that that you hit at some point between maybe one and a half miles per week and about three miles per week. Um, so, you know, really, really notable differences between no leisure time physical activity and an amount of leisure time physical activity equivalent to walking about one and a half miles with additional benefits for people walking the equivalent of about three miles, but uh, smaller marginal further increases. Okay, so moving on, the next study I want to talk about uh, is a meta-analysis of nine uh, prospective uh, studies on pedometer-based walking interventions. The title is A Meta-Analysis of Pedometer-Based Walking Interventions and Weight Loss by Richardson and colleagues. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the <laughs> the title gives away what it was. Uh, these were studies where essentially what they did is they just looked to see how much people were walking at baseline. They gave them pedometers and then they would say like, hey, try to walk more per day. And and so like the, the details of the different studies were different. So in one study, they just said, hey, wear this pedometer and whatever your baseline steps per day is, try to increase it by a thousand. And in a couple other studies, they're like, hey, we're going to give you this pedometer and aim for 10,000 steps per day. So like the details of the studies differed, but the the basics were all the same. You basically give someone a pedometer to quantify how much they're walking and then either give them a target to aim for or tell them, you know, aim for 1 to 3,000 more steps per day than whatever you're currently doing. And so in this meta-analysis, kind of at baseline in all nine of those studies, people were walking an average of of about 5 to 7,000 steps per day. And then uh like like through the intervention, they tended to increase to about eight to ten thousand steps per day, with the increase study to study ranging from about eighteen hundred steps per day to about forty five hundred steps per day as an increase. And this was an interesting meta. It found that there really wasn't much of a relationship between the increase of steps per day and the resultant rate of weight change. Uh, but they did find that there was a pretty strong relationship between intervention length and weight change. And so, like, that suggests that 
again, there is probably a point of diminishing returns because increasing your step count by 4,000 didn't seem to increase your rate of weight loss a ton more than increasing your steps per day by 2,000. But, you know, just increasing from whatever you were previously doing uh, did uh, did result in weight loss in a time-dependent manner. So uh, they found a pretty strong linear relationship between the length of the intervention and the total amount of weight loss. Um, it didn't have like a huge effect. So over the course of a year, it would be about three and a half kilos of weight loss. Um, but again, I, I think this once again suggests that there is probably a point of diminishing returns at a not insane amount of walking, because if there wasn't, you would expect you know, a 4,000 step per day increase to result in a faster rate of weight loss than a 1, 2,000 step per day increase. Uh, and then finally, the last day I want to talk about is, I, I thought it was pretty cool. So the, the title is Dose-Response Relationship Between Walking and the Attenuation of Inherited Weight by Williams. And so this was, um, like, so th this addressed the question from a slightly different perspective. So uh, the, the, first day, the first study I talked about was observational research. So, you know, essentially you just kind of look and say at a single point in time, how active are people and how much do they weigh? But there, there are all sorts of potential confounders there. You know, it, it could be that people who are predisposed to being more active are also predisposed to being lighter for reasons other than being more active. You know, like there, there are plenty of confounders there uh, or plenty of potential confounders uh, and reasons that you can't necessarily draw a causal relationship between saying like, well, the people who are active are lighter, but we can't necessarily say they're lighter because they're more active. Uh, and then the meta-analysis I talked about with, with pedometers, um, you know, there's a potential confounder there as well. So with an intervention study, like these, these weren't, so the, the, this was a meta basically just looking at the treatment effect of being in the pedometer group. But with, with experimental research, there's other effects to consider. Like what if people just behave differently because they know they're being studied, which is why in individual studies, generally you're comparing against a placebo group or a non-treatment control group, but still another group of people who know they're being observed and know they're being studied. Um, but yeah, so like the the pedometer-based uh, walking intervention meta, like, you know, maybe those people lost weight because they were in this walking intervention, but it is possible that like they know they're in a study, they know that body weight is an outcome of the study, so, you know, maybe they changed their behaviors and lifestyles uh, in ways other than just increasing the amount they were walking. So we can't know that the observed weight changes were necessarily treatment effects of the walking intervention. They probably were, but we can't say that with perfect certainty. Um, so, you know, no, no single way of answering a research question is perfect. And there's, you know, th there are potential drawbacks and confounders to both, uh, to both other types of research I've already talked about in this segment. So this is, this is a third kind of novel type of research, which also comes with its own drawbacks, but it does avoid uh, some of the drawbacks of those those other two types of research I've already talked about. So essentially, what this this was survey based research, and uh, so what they did is there was a walking magazine, and the researcher 
I guess just like got up with the people who published the walking magazine and just was like, Hey, can I send a, a scientific survey out to your readers, uh, to gather data on them? And I guess the publisher said, sure. So, uh, that was the study pool. And the, the survey basically asked people, um, like how much do you currently weigh? What was the weight status of your parents? How much did you weigh before you started walking as a hobby? And how much are you currently walking? Among other things. But like for our purposes here, those those were the relevant questions. Um, and one very important thing to note, and I, I think people either know this from research or intuit this, is like weight is pretty heritable. Like um, most people on average tend to be more similar in weight to their parents than they would be similar in weight to just a random member of the population. Uh, and that that could be genetic, that could be cultural or behavioral, like, you know, you're, you're taught things about food and, and eating behavior from your parents. Um, but, you know, we, we do know that weight status does tend to be quite heritable. Uh, and so what they, were, what they were interested in in this study is essentially when, like, what is the relationship between your weight and your parents' weight dependent on how much you walk? Uh, and so essentially what they found is, is the people who reported walking the least tended to have weights that were very similar to their parents. They found that for the people walking the most, they tended to have weights that were uh, c considerably lower than their parents. Like, in, like elevations in BMI above normal BMI, like for every one point increase of the parents, it was like a 0.6 BMI point increase for people who walked the most. Um, so, you know, it's it's still related to parent BMI, but there there is an attenuation of that effect. And then the other important thing to note is, like I said, they, they, they asked not just how much do you weigh currently, but they asked how much did you weigh before you took up walking as a hobby? And they found for those kind of self-reported baseline weights, for the people who were walking the most, before they started walking, their weights were very similar to their parents. So... You know, you, you can't draw the same sorts of causal inferences from this that you could from like an RCT, but that is at least suggestive of a causal relationship. So before they started walking, they had weights that were very similar to their parents, but then walking a pretty fair amount attenuated that relationship uh, and, and helped them be lighter than their parents were. So again, doesn't prove causation, but that's very, very suggestive of, of a causal relationship. But so going back to the question that was that was being asked that I'm addressing, like, is there a point of diminishing returns? And if so, where is it? Uh, this was another study that kind of split people out um, into, into four groups based on how much they reported walking. So the people who reported walking the least, it was less than 1.5 kilometers per day. The next group was 1.5 to 3 kilometers per day. The next group was 3 to 4.5 kilometers per day. And the top group was 4.5 kilometers per day. And so in terms of that metric of uh, attenuation of heritable parental weight status, what they found is that, as I mentioned previously, the people who walked the least, so less than 1.5 kilometers per day, seemed to have weight statuses that were very similar to their parents. For the people in the next group, 1.5 to 3 kilometers per day, there was an attenuation of that relationship. For people who walked um, in the next group, so 3 to 4.5 kilometers per day, 
there was an even greater attenuation of that relationship. But then for the people walking more than 4.5 kilometers per day, the attenuation of that relationship was basically identical to the people walking 3 to 4.5 kilometers per day. So essentially what they saw is kind of linear progressive increases in benefits up to about 3 to 4.5 kilometers per day, but no further benefits past that. Um, so, you know, for, <laughs> for, for American listeners who, who don't really like kilometers, that is, um, that's like 1.9 to 2.8 miles per day. So, uh, like two to three miles per day, essentially. And so that, that comports pretty well with that that cross-sectional study that I mentioned to start with that was just reporting leisure time physical activity. Um, we're seeing a very similar thing here. We're walking about two to three miles per day. Uh, again, not total walking, but just like leisure time walking. Like additional walking you're kind of doing just for fun, not as part of your lifestyle, not as part of your, your job, but just like, hey, I'm going to go out for a walk seems like walking about two or three miles, which would be about five to 7,000 additional kind of leisure time walking steps, that seems to be where most of the benefits are coming from for uh, effects on weight and weight loss. Um, and that's not to say that additional walking past that, there might not be further marginal benefits, but it seems like they're probably quite small maybe related to uh, the, the stuff I mentioned to start this segment, energy compensation, metabolic adaptation, etc. So uh, based on my read of the research, it appears that if you're interested in doing a bit of walking for the purpose of losing some weight, uh, going out, walking two to three miles, or if you're not tracking distance, walking about five to 7,000 steps over the course of a walk, that seems like it is probably going to give you you know, not not like tremendous huge benefits, but but measurable, quantifiable benefits, and further increases past there. It's not that they're not going to do no good, um, but their their marginal additional benefits are, are probably going to be quite small. So, uh, yeah, it, it seems like the point of diminishing returns is after about two or three miles per day. Good stuff. Very uh, very practical and actionable. Very good. Thank you. Um, all right. So this is our final segment, basically, before our summer break. And uh, it's basically a quick cautionary tale for everybody to uh, to stay vigilant and, uh, you know, on their toes during the six-week uh, six break that we're taking. So the reason I'm discussing this is there was a little bit of chatter about a paper from Medical Hypotheses. That's a journal that you'll find. Uh, it's it's by the publisher Elsevier. They, they own that journal now. It's indexed on PubMed. And the exact article is not particularly relevant, but every now and then I will see people kind of talking about an article from Medical Hypotheses. And I get, the, the cautionary tale here is that you got to be careful out there when you're in PubMed world, when you're you know looking at a, a claim or a statement or an argument and you're saying, oh, wow, there's a PubMed link behind this. I think there's a natural tendency to assign some degree of credibility to that. Like when you see an article from uh, or when you see a statement from an article on PubMed, I think naturally you tend to assume, wow. This has been through a pretty rigorous review process and 
the expert writing this and at least a couple other uh, content experts have said, yeah, this is a, a credible statement or argument and it passes the peer review. Uh, you know, it gets over the bar that we have set via peer review. But and, and, and we've talked about how I think people put a little bit too much faith in what well, people definitely put a lot too much faith in peer review. But at least at least it's something, you know, if yeah. if if an absolute stinker of an article makes it into the literature, at least you can say, well, I, I know this squeaked by at least two or three extra people. You know, yeah. yeah, it does. Peer review doesn't catch every bad paper, but it should at least theoretically catch the ones that are obviously terrible. Correct. Yeah. So, so I basically have a series of three points uh, or three statements to make. Just to remind people to kind of stay on your toes out there. So first of all, not all journals carry equal weight, even if they are PubMed indexed. Uh, and, you know, there are some journals, I think everybody knows there are some of those kind of fly-by-night journals that aren't really indexed anywhere. It's basically just a blog. It's like, hey, we now have the the journal, the International Journal of the Society of blah, blah, blah in conjunction with whatever. And it's just it's just a website, right? And like, yeah. maybe there's some peer review, who knows? Um, but, you know, usually to get indexed on PubMed, there's some some type of barrier or bar that you have to clear. But it's not always the case. And so whenever someone is kicking around uh, an idea from medical hypotheses, uh, all I do is encourage them, just look at the Wikipedia page for the journal Medical Hypotheses. I make no independent claim about the journal or anything like that. But if you look at, at the Wikipedia page, it is like part humorous and part tragic, yeah. honestly. Um, these are actual... So it was basically... Like I said, go to the Wikipedia page to get an idea of the history of the journal. But like, here are real quotes from the Wikipedia page. Um, uh, someone was asked about the peer review process at this journal. And uh, I think the like... It was the founder of the journal. The founder said, the, pri the primary criteria for acceptance are very different from the usual journals. In essence, what I look for are answers to two questions only. Uh, is there some biological plausibility to what the author is saying? Is the paper readable? We are not looking at whether or not the paper is true, but merely whether it is interesting. Um, there, <laughs> there's also a quote here. Uh, at, at one point, there was a scandal and a review panel was convened by Elsevier, the publishing company that, that now owns it. And they recommended that medical hypotheses adopt some form of, of a more more rigorous peer review to avoid what they called the publication of, this is a quote, baseless, speculative, non-testable, and potentially harmful ideas. And the editor at the time said that that recommendation went against the journal's history and is not supported by him or the editorial board. <laughs> they were literally just saying like, hey, can you just not post like reckless speculation that's like kind of harmful? And he was like, actually, I don't think we can do that. Yeah. So I, I, I will say, I think, hmm, I don't know if this is the case, but I suspect you and I might have like slightly different opinions about medical hypotheses. Yeah. I actually like it. I think it's a cool journal. I don't, to me, to me, the, the bigger issue is not with the journal itself. It's just that like, we can't trust virtually anyone to, 
to use it responsibly. Yeah. Um, so there, there was another quote here uh, from the Wikipedia page from one of the people in the journal's editorial review board. Quote, there are ideas that may seem implausible, but which are very important if true. This is the only place uh, you can get them published. Which, like, I think I think that it's just something where that... I, I think that should have to be at the top of their website. <laughs> yeah. be- because I think that serves a very important purpose. Like yeah, they're, yeah. Um, so there, there's this, um, there's this podcast I really like called QAnon Anonymous. And one of the guys on it, Travis View on their Patreon is currently doing a series called trickle down. Uh, so it's, it's not as much about like conspiracy theories, but like, um, it's more about just kind of like, uh, either bad ideas from that that start in kind of elite society and get percolated down or good ideas that someone without much societal power or clout have that take entirely too long to bubble up and reach popular acceptance and so the the most recent one was about uh peptic ulcers so they're mostly caused by h pylori bacteria we know that now but the thing is we had experimental evidence showing that in the 50s and 60s, but there was just such a strong medical orthodoxy that the stomach was sterile. Like, they they thought, you know, it's too acidic, no bacteria could live in there, so it's preposterous that peptic ulcers could have a bacterial cause. So there, there were people doing really important, good research that they couldn't get published anywhere because it just so flew in the face of medical consensus. So, like, if there was a journal like Medical Hypotheses back then where, you know, that seemed to the medical community to be a very implausible idea, but there was at least some potential biological mechanism for it, you know, uh, an outlet like that would be good for getting those sorts of ideas out. And so, like, a lot of the stuff that gets published in Medical Hypotheses is just kind of like crackpot bullshit, but there there are good ideas that do get suppressed, like, there's historical evidence for this happening with with like peptic ulcers and h pylori just being one example where an outlet like medical hypotheses existing is very good but yeah. the th- the thing is like people just have to know how to interact with that content responsibly and so again if that quote was just on the top of the journal site there are ideas that may seem implausible but which are very important if true this is the only place you can get them published it's just kind of like a buyer beware type thing. Yeah, like a yeah. lot of shit in here. Don't take it seriously. It's not going to pan out. But, you know, if you just want to read a wacky new idea with an open mind, yeah, sure, go for it. So, yeah, I, I do think I do think there's value to a journal like this existing. I just think it becomes dangerous because, like, we know what medical hypotheses is. But when I see people sharing uh, articles from medical hypotheses, I think there's like a 90% chance that they don't know what medical hypotheses is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like I, I, th- I think it becomes dangerous because unless you know what it is, it would be easy to see articles and take and, and give them far more credibility and weight than they should have. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely don't think that it should be unable to exist or anything like that. But uh, I, I, th- I think there should be a, Perhaps a better disclaimer system of like, hey, this is just kind of some stuff that somebody thinks. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's a little bit baseless. Yeah. Um, but yes, you, 
a lot of times people see not just a link to a journal, but a PubMed link. Yeah. Meaning like, oh, wow, this is actually indexed on PubMed. And, and like you said, I, I think there's a certain level of credibility that is lent to some of these ideas. Uh, and they really haven't gone through the process of earning that level of credibility uh, in terms of just providing evidentiary support for the, the idea itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind with that particular journal. But you know that, that's an extreme case. There are other journals that exist and are indexed on PubMed where you still have to be wary of a, kind of a, a, a bit of a bias in the journal. Like there was a journal back in the day. Um, sometimes journals will, the editorial board generally, or maybe just the editor in chief will just kind of have a pet theory that they really like. And so there was a journal back in the day where it was like really obvious if you wanted to publish something that was in line with the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity or just like adjacent to it. Yeah. Um, there was a nutrition journal that was just like, dude, we will do anything to publish your work. Like, My memory was it wasn't a nutrition journal. Um, which one are you thinking of? If you want to mention it. I, I mean, I was thinking of BJSM. Uh, I'm thinking of a different one. But, oh. but yeah. So, well, I, that, that was definitely BJSM as well. Yeah. But you will find some journals every now and then where generally speaking, the journal is quite credible. Yeah. But there is a little bit of a of a pet theory that they like to view a little bit more favorably than the evidence would justify. Yeah, BJSM very good with sports medicine. British Journal of Sports Medicine. Yeah, when they got into nutrition, eh, kind of wonky. Kind of exactly. Yeah. So sometimes you got you got to know the history of a journal and just the general vibe of a journal to fully contextualize exactly what you're looking at yeah. and. Theoretically, you know, good disclaimers and functioning peer review would shift less of that burden to the reader, but that's just a reality. That that's just the way it is. Um, another point that I wanted to make here is that even the rigorous journals that do a very good job have a, a completely broken operating model. Uh, so there was a preprint that I saw literally like a day or two ago that got posted. Um, this is something we've complained about a lot on the show, and I'm basically trying to justify our, all of our complaints. Uh, the, the title is, The Citation of Retracted COVID-19 Papers is Common and Rarely Critical. Uh, so basically what these authors were doing, you know, everybody says, oh, peer review, the, the whole system works great because if something's bad, you just retract it. And then everyone in the world knows it's retracted and no one ever talks about it again. And that is just functionally not at all how it works. Um, there are a lot of papers where it'll get published and make headlines and you can see the downloads and you can see the citations. The original paper gets all this traffic and then the retraction, no one ever hears about it. No one ever sees it. And so the general public perception or uh, consensus is like, we know that the original paper existed. We filed that away as fact. And we had no idea. We never heard that it got retracted. And so the idea gets out there, but the retraction doesn't, Yeah, which is immensely problematic. Um, so anyway, what they did in this was they, they went to the Retraction Watch database uh, and looked for uh, entries of, of retracted COVID-19 papers. Um, they, they were analyzing a total of, it looks like, 1,036 citations related to uh, retracted COVID papers. Uh, the majority, 86% of the citations that they found of these retracted COVID papers were not critical. Basically, they were re- they were citing the original paper 
and saying like, oh, yeah, here's what it found. They weren't saying, by the way, look at this retracted paper with erroneous findings, right? Yeah. They were uncritically saying, here's literature that exists, and we're going to cite that. And what they found was the majority of papers citing the retracted research were actually published after the retraction date. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 80% of the papers uh, citing retracted papers were published after the retraction date. And, and some percentage of those probably had already been submitted at the mm-hmm. time that like retractions came down. But it, I, I still think that suggests that probably most of them were still like submitted after the retraction would have come down. Because like yeah. eight, 80%, that's a big number. And, and either way, uh, the internet exists. Well, yeah, I, I, regardless of whether that's <laughs> the case, like... You know, maybe at that point it's out of the author's hands, at least on the initial submission. But like reviewers could catch that. Uh, like, God forbid the publishers do some work and like yeah. check the check the citations for papers before they actually put them on their website. Yeah, I mean, the, what what we're doing right now with academic publishing is using a model that is several decades out of date, could be fixed tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, But because it's like, well, this process was set in motion 13 months ago to publish this paper. The fact that everyone involved knows that you've cited a a paper that got retracted five months ago, there is no process in that workflow where they say, actually, let's revisit that and let's kind of fix that up before we send this out. Yeah. Like before this goes up on our website, let's do something about that. Yeah. Uh, there's There's just not a good system for dealing with that. And so the problem is... The way that publishing currently works, a lot of people hear about the original finding, very few people hear about the retraction, and there are a lot of papers getting published today that cite uncritically papers that were retracted five or six months ago. Yeah. Uh, and they are proliferating the ideas that have since been with been withdrawn or corrected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just generally not good. Yeah. Uh, and then the final thing... And, I- well, and I mean, even branching outside of science, I mean, what... One of one of my big bugbears is how, regardless of how good or bad scientific research is, there is often like an additional layer of filtering before it gets to people, and that's you know journalistic output essentially. And, and all of these same dynamics are also there in place. Like when when a paper is retracted, it's generally not um, like publicized enough within the scientific community. But it, it's the same thing. Like I'm thinking about uh, like Wansink stuff, for example. Like his his research was like super influential, and like I I think every outlet in the world wrote favorably about it. And then uh, when his downfall occurred, you know, it's not like all of those same outlets were just like, "Ooh, sorry." In 2013, we we wrote uncritically about this paper that has now been retracted, and you know, so like not many of those articles existed. And the ones that did wind up existing certainly didn't get shared as much as the original article did. So, like, uh, w- within both academia and just kind of, like, lay press, there, there is that asymmetry where the initial uh, uh, poor bit of information just has, has a longer life and a longer tail and gets in front of more people and influences more people's thinking than the eventual retraction Saying like, hey, this thing you believed, maybe you shouldn't believe it quite as much anymore. Like that that just doesn't that doesn't get out as well. But both because like fewer people try to get it out, and then when it does get out, like it's it's less interesting. So it do, it doesn't get shared as much. 
So it, it does set up both in in press, but also in academic publishing, this this information asymmetry. Correct. Yeah. And then the final thing I wanted to mention here uh, is, so like, let's say the, sy the system is functioning properly and an academic who is working within their area of expertise notices uh, some papers with, you know, what seem to be errors or even potentially indicators of fraudulent work. So someone says, wait a minute, I'm an academic in this area. I'm going to actually do something about this because everyone says that science is a self-correcting endeavor. Uh, so I just saw this um, a couple minutes before we started recording. There is a, a quick paper that got published. It's called, Is There an Epidemic of Research Fraud in Natural Medicine? <laughs> by Alan Gaby. And uh, now this is not someone who's just kind of like a lot of times people like to discredit people who do work in error detection and research. It's like, oh, you're just some nerd who's not doing the real work sitting around criticizing all day yeah, you're, you're a professional hater yeah so this author is author of the textbook nutritional medicine now in its second edition he's past president of the american holistic medical association and gave expert testimony to the white house commission on complementary and alternative medicine this is not an alternative medicine hater yeah this is a person who does rigorous academic work in this area so with that out of the way, uh, basically, he, he writes this article and uh, it's basically him saying like, hey, I've noticed that there's a lot more stuff lately in this area of natural medicine that I just don't think is I just don't think is legit. And I'm obviously paraphrasing his perspective here. But in his final remarks, he says, during the past few years, the rate at which concerning papers have been appearing in the medical literature seems to have increased considerably. Uh, journal editors and publishers should insist on more rigorous peer review of submitted papers, it is disconcerting that peer reviewers failed to identify any of the red flags described in this article. In addition, journal editors must overcome their reluctance to investigate research that has raised concerns among their readers. So in this article, he talks about, basically, I found stuff that seemed very implausible. I contacted the journals, and they largely said, like, that's weird. And then just if they responded and just generally were very reluctant to do a damn thing. And so like there, there are so many instances of this whole song and dance here with the peer reviewed literature, uh, disseminating that information among researchers, disseminating that information to the general public. There are just so many landmines to navigate mm -hmm. in, in the way that this system currently works. I'm going to link this in the show notes. Um, I, I do want to mention it, it. It's a little bit dicey. Like in this uh, in this article, it does call out specific countries, which I don't like to do in terms of like where research is coming from. Like, you know, this author mentions specific countries. He's like, oh, I noticed that there's a trend in these regions where where there's research that I'm skeptical of. I prefer not to do that just because like there are there's good research and bad research happening in every country that contributes to our field. I prefer to just focus on individual lab groups, things of that nature, you know, or, or areas of research where there seem to be, uh, you know, some surprising findings or contradictory findings or, you know, just weird findings. So I personally am not a huge fan of, of isolating it to specific countries, but, um, obviously th this author is doing that with what appears to be an empirical basis. Like, here is where my various investigations have led me, and here are the origins of those papers. So yeah. 
I, I don't want to get into that whole thing, um, but I will at least link the paper because uh, basically it, it describes uh, a number of red flags and certain areas of research where there have been some uh, questionable findings published. And if nothing else, it's, it's an interesting uh, look at what this process looks like. And I don't bring that up to disparage the author. I think this is a very good work. And this author obviously has gone out of his way to do a lot of work that is frankly underappreciated. Like when you do the error, de error detection work, as he notes in this paper, the journals don't seem to be very fond of it. They don't seem to follow up the way you'd want them to. And it's the type of work that really puts you in a lot of people's crosshairs and not in a favorable way. Well, I mean, I mean, of course, like, like why, why would people appreciate error detection folks? Cause like, Dude, if you're the editor of a journal, uh, retracting a paper makes makes you and your journal. It shouldn't make you look bad, but the the thing is, since people probably don't do it enough, if if you are retracting papers at the rate you should, now it looks like oh, my journal has a higher retraction rate. We're doing a bad job by by letting bad stuff slip in, which is it's like well, no, you're you're just doing a better job than everyone else of, of taking out the trash, but. That's not how most people will interpret it. So there, there's like that pressure to not retract stuff. And also just like, dude, every academic in the world is massively overworked. And, uh, you know, just the time and and potentially the money and certainly just like the man, the, well, the person hours it would take to do the investigation, which like maybe the, the researcher's university is attempting to stonewall because it's going to make them look bad and it's going to make their faculty look bad if research fraud is detected or just if papers are retracted for uh just kind of like sloppy work like th there there are there are a lot of people who it is in their best interest to not uh undertake that effort and retract stuff so um yeah i mean the 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 deck is stacked against you and if you want to go into the error detection field and try to try to clean up the scientific literature um just know that you're uh, going into a Herculean undertaking. You will often feel uh, like a lone wolf crying out in the wilderness and everyone is ignoring you at best or just despising you at worst. But ultimately, like, it's it's an important thing and, like, someone's got to do it or at least some someone should do it and more people should be doing it. Yeah, wasn't it, uh, was it uh, James Heathers and Nick Brown that people called them data thugs? Yeah. Yeah, like that That was kind of their their big thank you from the field was like, uh, you, you guys are assholes. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so like I said, I, I literally saw this paper like two or three minutes before we started recording. So I'm not going to pretend that I've read it thoroughly because that would not be true. I'm excited to dig into this during our break and see if I gain any additional insights from it. But the reason I wanted to make it av available was because uh, someone tweeted it out and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And I, I think some viewers or listeners in the audience might also want to dig into this uh, simultaneously. So, uh, yeah, like I said, just like a general note, um, over our six week break when we're gone, as you're kind of working your way through the literature, just remember that you got to keep some of these important things in mind. Um, peer reviewed literature is a helpful tool, but the peer review process is far from infallible. And so you'll want to, you want to make sure you stay on your toes. All right. So to play us out and to play out our current season of the show, going to give a couple very quick recommendations for music back to the music recommendations. We're back on the topic of training music. 
And uh, this is really simple. You can do no better than these two bands, which have considerable overlap in terms of personnel, Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, they are, how would you describe the genre, would you say? Rock on yeah. the heavier side. I mean, they... Rage came out at kind of this kind of the same generation as like new metal, but I I would just feel dirty calling them new metal and like putting them together with like corn. Right. So yeah. it it doesn't feel right. But yeah, I I can't think of a better independent descriptor. Right. Yeah. So so that that's the genre in which they reside. It's, Ra- like, it's like somewhere between I mean, I assume everyone listening. We're wasting our breath now. I assume yeah. everyone listening to this knows of Rage Against the Machine. But yeah, it's somewhere. This is be- your annual reminder to go back and listen to them more. It's somewhere between like punk metal and rap. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's excellent. And then with Audio Slave, they bring in Chris Cornell, rest in peace. For my money's worth, I think I'd say he's my favorite rock vocalist of all time. D- do you have a contender that you'd throw in there? Uh, it's um, hard to beat Chris Cornell. Um, what was that guy's name? I'm so bad at names. Who was the original singer of Kill Switch Engage? I have no idea. Uh, Howard. Yeah, yeah. Howard Jones from Kill Switch Engage. Uh, also a tremendous vocalist. And his current band, Light the Torch, is also really fucking good. Awesome. Yeah, I've never heard of. I've never listened to the first band. Never heard of the second. So. We're covering some obvious picks here, but there are some uh, some new bands that people might want to check out. All right, good stuff. So uh, great training music and uh, definitely be sure to listen to them. So that does it for this episode and for the season of the Stronger by Science podcast. We're going to be back in approximately six weeks or so. Uh, in the meantime, you'll still be able to find us. We'll be uh, in our Stronger by Science and Macro Factor subreddits and in our Facebook groups. We'll still be sending research updates to our email newsletter. Be sure to join that if you're not on it yet. Uh, So yeah, we'll be around, but the podcast is going to be on a little break. And we are, as always, very thankful that you joined us for this episode. And we're excited to see you with another one after the break. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.